During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, 
the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I give this, uh, this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house, for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, help us to know you. This passage reveals more of who you are. As Moses encounters you on this mountain, Help us also to know more of ourselves. Help us to see the greatness of your grace toward us this morning. Help us not to hear the voices of condemnation, uh, but if we do, to direct those voices to Jesus, the Lamb of God who has taken away our sins. We ask this in his name. Amen. David Brainerd was a student in Yale. This was back in the days when Yale actually prepared men for ministry. And that's why David Brainerd was there, to be trained for ministry and to go into the pastorate. And he was in his sophomore year because back then it was a bachelor's of divinity. It was not like today where now you go and go to grad school for it. And he made a comment about one of his professors that this professor was no more spiritual than that chair. As you might imagine, that comment didn't go over very well with the professor nor with the administration. And so the mouth of David Brainerd got himself in trouble, trouble such that he was expelled from Yale and was not able to pursue pastoral ministry. And so began a very dark period in David's life as he pondered his guilt and its consequences in the here and the now. It was the most difficult period of David Brainerd's life. Could God ever use David again is the question that probably came to his mind. It certainly was something that Moses was struggling with and might be something that some of you struggle with. 
Can God use me, someone who has sinned in such a way? First part we're going to look at this morning is that God knows the suffering of his people because that's kind of what's going to play into the restoration of Moses. And so we see at the very end of chapter 2, after Moses has fled and has gotten into Midian, we see that Moses is hiding in Midian. He's afraid. He can't go back to Egypt because, as far as he knows, the king is still looking for him to, to kill him. And so he's serving as a shepherd. Quite the calling now, as a man who has gone from the court, all the privilege, all the power, all the pleasure of Egypt, and now he is a nomadic shepherd of sheep and goats wandering through the wilds of Midian. Big switch, big change. There's a lot to think about when that happens. But this is really a sign of how Moses understands himself. I see it as very similar to what takes place in the last Star Wars trilogy, where Luke Skywalker, after the debacle with Ben Solo, has retreated to a faraway planet that no one can find so that he does no more damage to others or to himself. Filled with shame at his failure, he just doesn't want to do anything to be engaged in anything, even though the people that he loves, including his sister and her husband and everyone else, is wrapped up trying to, re- to free themselves from an oppressive government. That's Moses, in a sense. There's this oppression that's going on, and he is kind of off licking his wounds in Midian. He's not facing what he must do. He's hiding from what he must do. We read here that the king of Egypt has died, uh, that Moses could go back over those many days, but Moses does not go back. There seems to be no relief in sight. The people of Israel are still being oppressed. I imagine that the killing of the male children has ended with the new pharaoh, but we're not sure because it doesn't actually say that. And so we read of the response of the people of Israel about the, how they groaned. They cried for help. They cried for rescue. And so there's this piling up of these different words uh, that are indicating the depths of the sorrow that they feel because of the oppression of the Egyptians. And they're crying out that they would be set free from their slavery. One of the more interesting moments in ministry for me was when I was a pastoral intern, something that David Brainerd never did. And the the man that I was uh, working with said to me one day, talking about a couple who had uh, left the church and uh, because of sin that they were still participating in, and he says, I'm going to pray that God would make them miserable. And I'm like, What have I gotten myself into? This guy sounds crazy. (laughs) But the more I thought about it, the more I realized he wasn't crazy. But that actually is how God works. That's how sin and misery are supposed to be joined together so that the misery drives us to repentance. 
and the misery that they experienced, not just because of slavery, but as we see from the conflict between the two Hebrew slaves, we also see the sin of the people present as well. All of this is driving them to cry out to God for relief. It's doing its work. It's difficult work in their lives. We don't know if Moses was also crying for relief. I can't imagine what it would have been like to spend four decades as a shepherd in Midian. I worked for a couple of years uh, doing you know, kind of really menial work shortly after college, and that drove me crazy. I was thinking of my sabbatical, and the first month was really hard because I had nothing to do except you know, drive across the country, listen to music. Because my, my boys don't talk when they're in the car. Maybe that's my fault because I listen to music. I'm not sure which way it goes. Uh, but the first month was really filled with thoughts of life. The regrets, the, the decisions that I made that maybe didn't work out very well, the, the things that have happened to me, uh, the, the decisions other people make with regard to me or with regard to the church, all of these things and just... The first month really stunk. And that's probably what a lot of it was like for Moses. Why did I kill that guy? Why did I go and visit the Hebrews? Why, why, why? It's not just being hard on oneself, but in times like this, we can also have hard thoughts toward God. We can be filled with anger and bitterness toward God because life is not turning out the way we think it ought to turn out. We're not getting the things that we thought we should get at this point, at this stage in our lives. These people are not yet free from slavery. It's been decades. It's been over a generation. They're still enslaved. Where is God? Fortunately, this chapter ends on a better note than that. God heard. God listened. There's a difference. Every wife will tell her husband, there's a difference. Every parent will tell their child, there's a difference. And he remembered his covenant. And so this should be the hopeful music that starts to play. In the midst of the sorrowful music of the groaning, we see that God begins to take notice. That God prepares to act because that's the idea of remembering. He's remembering his covenant. He's about to fulfill that which he promised Abraham in Genesis 15 and that which he reminded Jacob of in Genesis 46 before Jacob goes into Egypt in the first place. God is about to act. God saw and God knew. He didn't just see, he perceived, he understood. This is, in a sense, the reverse of what happens at the Tower of Babel. Because similarly with um, Sodom and Gomorrah, God comes down, God investigates, and God brings judgment. Here God is coming down He's seeing, and he's going to free his people. As we think about Jesus, Jesus comes down too. Uh, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, descends 
comes down from heaven, takes on the, the nature of a man, becomes the God-man, and, and therefore, as this Messiah becomes the man of sorrows, he knows sorrow and suffering. He did not come as an elite. He did not come as a one-percenter. He came as an ordinary person, a run-of-the-mill kind of person who suffered under the thumb of Rome. And Jesus also knows the weight of sin because Jesus is the sin-bearer. While he does not know the personal experience of guilt, while he doesn't know what it's like to be separated from God in that sense, personally, he bears it as the Savior and therefore understands and knows the weight of guilt and condemnation. Perhaps even better than you and I. Because we live in denial an awful lot about our guilt and our shame. And so as we think about the fact that God knows the suffering of his people, we should, when we suffer, cry out in faith for God to deliver us. That should be our response. Not to cry out in anger, but to bring our sorrow to him. And if you don't know how to do that, there's a book called the Psalms. You might have heard of it. And it's filled with songs just like that where God's people are crying out in their misery, where David the king, or before he's the king, depending on the psalm, brings his sorrow and his suffering into the presence of God that God might know and act. Let us bring our sorrows to the foot of the cross because we know Jesus cares knows, and acts. Second part of this is that God restores repentant, wayward sinners. And it's, uh, part of this is clear from the text, and part of this is not as clear from the text. But let's remember again, back to Moses, back to Midian, 40 years dwelling on the fact that he is not in the courts of Pharaoh. He is in the tent of Jethro when he's not under the stars at night caring for sheep. He has time to think. He has time, hopefully, to learn. He's going to learn what, it's, what it takes to survive in the wilderness because he's going to have to lead a number of people who, who don't know anything about surviving in the wilderness. And so while this was... Not his plan, this was ultimately God's plan to prepare Moses for this work that he's going to do right now. And Moses has gone to uh, the western part of Midian. He's gone to a mountain called Horeb, which uh, is also Sinai. It's another name for this mountain. Places there often had more than one name. And it's not placed on our map, which is kind of interesting, because we're not exactly sure which mountain it was. There's a lot of theories as to which particular mountain it happened to be, but we're not sure the exact location of uh, Mount Horeb. And that's good. That's excellent. Because God knows the wickedness of our hearts. 
What do we do to Bethlehem? We descend on it as, as, a, as if it's some special holy place. We've created these churches that go on where we think the grave is. We don't know what grave it is. We're so prone to idolatry that I believe it is good that we don't know the exact location of this mountain, which mountain it is, because we build an edifice there and worship there. But it's there somewhere, just east of Egypt. And it is while he's on this mountain of God that Moses sees a bush that is on fire, and yet the bush is not consumed. Now, we're all familiar with uh, fire pits and fires, and you throw wood in there, and the wood burns up, and soon you've got just a bunch of charcoal. That's not what's happening. The bush is just there. There are a lot of theories as to what the burning bush represents. And I think a lot of bad theories. (laughs) Some of them think it's about the people of God or the situation. But I believe because it is a theophany, as we're about to see in a few moments, that it is supposed to communicate to us something about God, something that is also revealed in the name that God gives to Moses, the idea of I am. It's kind of weird. Yesterday, I was at Costco waiting to get a hot dog, for the, for the you know, hot dogs for the family, and there was a guy with a, a shirt, and on the back it said, I am flooring. He, yeah, <laughs> he named the flooring company after the name of God, which sounds a little weird to me, because that should be a sacred name, because that is the name by which you're intended to call upon God. And what's revealed, I believe, in the burning bush is the self-existence of God, the aseity of God, because the fire is not dependent upon the bush. The fire exists independent of the bush. The fire does not require the bush, and God does not require anything to be. He is. He is I am. He does not require you. He does not require this world. And this is one of the the creator-creature distinctions that we experience, that we can understand, that God does not need us, but he loves us. But we need everything, don't we? We are contingent beings. We are not self-existent beings. We rely on other things in order to have and sustain life. If I deprive you of air, how long will you last? A couple minutes. Depends how long you can hold your breath. Don't know. If I deprive you of water out in the desert, you'll last a few days, but you're going to die because you're dependent upon water. If we deprive you of food, you last a little bit longer. You can last months without food. Depends how much extra you carry around your waist or wherever it is that you happen to carry it. But it goes to the point that we are dependent. And we're not only dependent upon things like food, water, and air. We're also dependent upon one another. Because if you put someone in solitary confinement, what happens is they soon and eventually will go insane. Because we were made to need other people. 
And that's not God. He's not like us in this respect. Now, this theophany is very interesting because it says the angel of the Lord appeared in the flame, and yet it also says that God called out to him from the bush. There seems to be some distinction between the angel or messenger of the Lord and God himself, and yet they are joined together. Many think that the angel of the Lord is actually the pre-incarnate son. We're not sure. It's going beyond Scripture, I think, to, to be, try to nail that down and be positive about that. But this certainly is a theophany, God revealing himself in a tangible, physical, material way to a human being. And what's interesting, of course, is that God doesn't say, who's there? God says, Moses, Moses. Similar to when Samuel was a young child sleeping in, uh, in the tabernacle and he heard, Samuel, Samuel. God knows Moses and is calling out to him. God is initiating this encounter, not Moses. Moses is not seeking the Lord. The Lord is seeking Moses. And God is seeking Moses because God is about to keep his covenant with Abraham. And Moses' reply is, here I am. Now Samuel was told by Eli to say, speak, I'm listening. Was Isaiah as encounters God, and God has this mission, who will I send? Isaiah speaks up and says, here I am, send me, similar to what Moses says here. And we see the continuing revelation of who God is because God says to Moses, and he's going to repeat this in other places in this text, but I am the God of your father. We'll get to that in a second. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, later on, he's going to say, I am the God of your fathers. But here he says, I am the God of your father, singular. Before he specifies the patriarchs, his father, Amram, worshipped the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I'm not a novel God. I am the God that you should be familiar with. I am the God that your father worshipped. And I am the God of, your, of the patriarchs, who they worshipped and who made covenant with them. Jesus refers back to this as we saw from uh, the, the text in Matthew, that it points to that not that he's, he was the God of these men because now they're dead, but he is the God of these men because they live in his presence still. And what's fascinating or, or shocking about that is the reality that all of these three men, and Moses too, were shifty sinners. If we went back to Genesis and we looked at this and we looked at a part of it uh, in our text this morning from Genesis, all three of these men were liars, deceivers. All three of them were schemers. We tend to think of Jacob as the schemer, but it starts with Abram. 
as he schemes not only to protect himself from the Pharaoh and the, and the, the powerful people of Egypt, and then later Abimelech, uh, but we see that he also schemes with Sarah in order to fulfill God's promise through Hagar, the handmaid. And we see that Isaac doesn't receive the promise of God or doesn't pass on the promise of God to the one he's supposed to. He tries to give it to Esau. He schemes. And the reason he schemes is his gluttony. He loved the food. But we see that his wife is just as much a schemer as he is. In fact, even a better schemer. She has a PhD in scheming. And so she is the one who encourages Jacob to steal the blessing, which forces him to flee from his angry brother. They're all sinners. There's nothing to to recommend them to God. And there's nothing to recommend Moses to God. He's a murderer. God is the God of sinful and broken people. Which is really good news. Because we are all sinful and broken people. The gospel is the treasure and he places it in jars of clay like us. Fragile people. Messed up people. Wayward people. It's hard for us to keep our hearts moving in the right direction. We're so, we're, it's like squirrel. We have spiritual ADD. That's part of our malady that we have inherited from Adam. It's still there. It's not gone yet. It still plagues us. You can't even pay attention to our whole sermon. <laughs> I know I struggle when I sit where you sit. My brain races ahead and goes in all these different directions. What I think I would say, because I'm a better preacher than that guy. Oh, my pride, look at that. What a sinner I am. And so Moses, seeing something of the holiness of God in this encounter, is very similar to Isaiah. He hides his face, he's afraid to look at God. He's filled with guilt and his shame because he realizes, I have blown it. That's why I'm on this stupid mountain in the middle of nowhere. I'm not with my people. I'm not leading them out of Egypt. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. That's Moses, and often we can feel that way as well. Messed up my marriage. Messed up my parenting. My kids have gone off to who knows where. Messed up my career. Messed up. I shouldn't see teenagers nodding with that one yet. There's not a whole lot you've messed up yet. Don't worry, there's more. And you will mess it up. And that's part of the hard part (laughs) of allowing our children to mess up. Allowing them to make mistakes so that they can begin to learn from those mistakes. Moses is not ready 
to lead the people of Israel apart from the mistake, the messing up. But God is here to restore Moses. He's not not showing up to tell Moses what a horrible human being he is. He's not there to heap shame upon Moses. He's not there to accuse Moses. He's here to restore Moses. Similar to what we see when Isaiah comes in the presence of God as he's lifted up into the, the heavenly temple after the King Uzziah dies. And God is the one who initiates Isaiah cries out about how unclean his lips are, but God is the one who says, take the coal and cleanse his lips, atone for his sin. God is the one who atones for sin. He's the one who initiates that. And here he initiates the restoration of Moses. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, the very person you don't want to see, to the very place you don't want to go, the very place you have been avoiding for 40 years. Just as Jesus restored Peter, has Jesus restored Paul? God is in the restoration business. And let's think back to the life of David Brainerd for a moment. His plan was to be a a minister, but in reality what happens after this period of of depression and, and sorrow in his life, this misery that he experiences, is that he goes and he becomes a missionary to the indigenous people in western Massachusetts. And because he ended up meeting and knowing Jonathan Edwards, we have access to the diary of David Brainerd, which recounts his experiences and is one of the great devotional books uh, since that period of time. And David Brainerd gave his life serving these people something he never would have done if he hadn't have made that stupid comment. And so leave your regrets to serve Jesus precisely because you have been forgiven. You don't need to walk around guilty, guilty, guilty. You don't need to beat yourself up. You need to leave the sin at the cross of Jesus and you need to begin to serve him and say, here I am, send me. It may not be where you want to go or where you planned on going, but there you go. And the gospel is the treasure, not you. Live like a justified person. Thirdly, God reveals his glory in delivering his people. And this is the rest of this chapter. We see his glory in this. I have surely seen, heard their cry, and know their suffering. In other words, God has full knowledge. We talked a little bit about those omni words, omniscient, all-knowing. God has the, all of the facts where you and I only have most of the facts at best. Most of the time we only have some of the facts. And this God who knows everything says, I have come down to deliver them. He is compassionate. He acts on the facts. 
He keeps his promise. He's faithful. But we see that God uses instruments. He's going to send Moses, but when it comes to the final, the full deliverance that's to come, that this points us to, that of Jesus, it is the eternal Son who comes who needs no other instruments, who comes himself to save himself. Or he himself saves us. That takes away the confusion. But we should recognize that it is Jesus here who also is the one who rescues Egypt. You know that book that you probably haven't read in a long time called Jude? How many of you have read Jude recently? I see one, two, all right, we got two people, three people, Jude 5, Jesus, as it says right there, I'll go look on this side, I don't have to move, Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, we see the unity of the Godhead here, it is Jesus who is delivering his people out of Egypt, according to the inerrant word of God, Jesus. He used Moses, but it was Jesus. He's going to deliver them out of the slavery of Egypt, but not into nothingness, not not to Midian. Uh, They are going to go to a good and broad land, that is overflowing with milk and honey. And so we have a picture, a revelation of the generosity, kindness, and goodness of God. He's not sticking them on a bus and sending them to Chicago. He's bringing them to the promised land, which is an abundant land because there are six different tribes that are living there that they're going to be removing because their sin has reached its maximum. There's going to be room for them to grow in this land, and it's not a wasteland. It's a land filled with milk and honey, which means it was rich and there was rain. Because, well, how does honey get made? The bees have to get their plants somewhere. Honey, oh sorry, the milk, the cows need to eat something, or the goats, depending on, they probably had goat milk. But pasture land, it's a rich land, and God's going to put them there because of his promise, not because of how deserving they might be. He reminds them that I am the God of your fathers. He is the eternal, faithful, committed God. He's committed to generation upon generation. He does work in individuals' lives, but he also is the multi-generational God because he makes promises about future generations, about your seed, your household. Now, what is he supposed to say to the elders so that the elders now then go with him and they go talk to Pharaoh And he says that they met with God. Well, he met with God. But this God of the Hebrews wants them to travel three days and then sacrifice to the Lord our God. That's not what their goal is, right? 
What's the goal? Moses, we have it already in the text. Deliver them out of Egypt into the promised land. So why is God telling him to only say three days journey, we're going to sacrifice out there? Is God being deceptive? Is it wrong? Are we to apply the, the, um, the ethics of warfare here? Is this simply uh, like in Pirates of the Caribbean, a parlay which is not really binding? Understood that there's negotiation that's going to take place? What's clear, however, is that this is a clear challenge to Pharaoh. Remember, who is Pharaoh? Or who does Pharaoh believe he is, actually? Because Pharaoh really isn't this. Pharaoh believes he is the incarnate son of Ra. And that he has ownership over these people. And God, is this challenge here is saying, no, you don't. They worship this God, not you. What else is going on is that, is that the Lord is about to reveal to the people of Israel and to us just how unreasonable this man is. Setting the bar low. Three days journey, we'll be back. And we're going to see how it keeps changing over the course of the, of the plagues. But he won't do that. It's not a request to set us free, that we might go somewhere else and never come back. Good riddance to you. It's just three days journey, sacrifice, come back. And that's how unreasonable he is. He won't let them do it. And they needed to know how unreasonable he was so they will actually leave Egypt instead of being set free and staying. They have to want to leave, not simply be set free from slavery. Is what's going on here. But again, we see the omniscience or the all-knowingness of God. God, I know he will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. This is not going to be quick. This is not going to be easy, Moses. What's significant about that idea of the mighty hand is that, that a lot of the Egyptian texts talk about Pharaoh's mighty hand. How no one can withstand his mighty hand. Similar to, I remember a few years ago, oh boy, it's probably been over a decade now, there was a hurricane that went through the Caribbean. And one of the news reports was people talking about how Castro with the power of his thumb, kept the hurricane away from Cuba. <laughs> right? I mean, at least with, uh, not Royal Roberts, Pat Robertson, it was the prayer. <laughs> it was God who did it. You know, everybody prayed so effectively that the hurricane missed Virginia. Okay? This is an atheist saying, I have the power to move the storm away from Cuba so it doesn't harm my people. It's a similar thing. God's going to reveal how weak, mighty Pharaoh actually is. There are people that we think have so much power over us, but God will show us how little power they actually have. He's going to perform these wonders 
these plagues, these signs. There's going to be a, a spiritual battle that is going to take place. And all of these Israelites are going to have a front row seat. And they're going to see the glory of God revealed as he does war against Pharaoh in Egypt. And praise God, we have a record of that today so that we can know, we can believe, we can trust. This is an example of, if God is for us, who can stand against us? So, what do we do with that? How do we apply that? Well, if God reveals his glory in our deliverance, what we're supposed to do is declare the glories of him who delivered us. It's right there in 1 Peter chapter 2. We declare his excellencies. We declare his perfections. We declare his power. We declare his mercy. We declare his kindness. We declare his goodness. Because there's a world out there that doesn't believe that about God. If they believe there is a God. God has given us this task just as he gave Isaiah this task. Although, of course, Isaiah was going to speak to people who wouldn't listen. (laughs) He was going to preach them down to a stump. But we're called to speak the glories of God to people. That was the nice thing about the the retreat. Uh, Amy and I went on a marriage retreat this week. And uh, the girls went shopping while the guys started talking. Uh, we had to give our stories. And so here I am with uh, you know, nine other guys who are in ministry of various sorts, and we're sharing our stories of how God worked and how God is working. There were a lot of tears in that room because people remember what God did that they didn't deserve. And some people have really horrible stories. Horrible things have happened to some of those people. And some of them, like me, have done horrible things. And yet, God is merciful. God pardons. He gives us the righteousness of Christ. And he says, serve me. I know what you've done, but I want you to serve me. And part of how we, he wants us to serve him is to declare the glories of him who delivered us. And that's what David Brainerd did. He didn't just feel forgiven. He felt forgiven and went and told people about how great Jesus is. And what Moses is going to do against Moses' will in some sense, because we're going, to, we're going to look at how hesitant he is in the weeks to come. But what Moses does is he goes and he tells the people of Israel how great God is, and then he says to, Mo, to Pharaoh, you're going to learn how great God is, and you're not going to like it. But God is going to give himself or reveal his glory through his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who restored Moses, who redeemed 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Samuel, Peter, Paul, James, Matthew, John. You are the God who redeems us, who restores us to yourself, and who then uses us for your glory. Help us to believe that. Help us to believe that there's no story of ours that is too dark for you to enter and shine your light. That there is no sin that we have committed that is too great for you to forgive. That there's no detour so long and far that you are not able to put us back on the right path. Help us to believe what you're telling us in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.